Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I'm the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, today is a first for Voices in AI. We have two guests. Uh, the first one is from Qventus. His name is Mudit Gard, and he's here with Robert Nittendorf, who's with Norwest Venture Partners, who also serves on Qventus's board. Moody Garg is the co-founder and the CEO of Cuventus, and they are a company that offers artificial intelligence-based software designed to simplify hospital operations. He's founded multiple technology companies before Cuventus, including Hive, a group messaging platform, and he spent two years as a consultant with Seattle-based McKinsey and Company, focusing, I think, on hospital operations. Robert uh, from Norwest Ventures, before that, he was VP of Marketing and Business Development at Hanson Medical, a publicly traded NASDAQ company. He's also a board certified emergency physician who completed his residency training at Stanford. He received his MD, MD from Harvard Medical School, his MBA from Harvard Business School, and he has a BS in biomedical engineering from Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Good morning. Thank Thanks you for having us. Moodit, I'll start with you. Tell us about Qventus and its mission and like, get us all oriented with uh, why we're here today. Absolutely. So the best way to uh, think of Qventus, you know, our customers often describe us like, a, like an air traffic control, you know, much like what an air traffic control does for airports, where it allows many, many flights to land much more than um, if they were uncoordinated and much more safely than if they were uncoordinated. We do the same for healthcare and hospitals. You know, for me, this, um, uh, as, as kind of boring and uncool as the world of operations and processes might be, I had a chance to see that firsthand working in hospitals uh, when I was at McKinsey and Company and really just felt that uh, we were letting all of our clinicians down. You know, if, if you think of our U.S. healthcare system, it's, we have the best clinicians in the world, we have great therapies, great equipment, but we fail at providing great medicine. And much of that was being held back by the complex operations that surround the delivery of care. So I got really excited about using data and using AI to help support these frontline clinicians in improving the core delivery of care and the operation. So things like, you know, we, you might as a patient sometime sit in emergency department and wonder what's going on and why uh, you aren't being taken care of faster. On the flip side is a set of clinicians who are putting in heroic efforts trying to do that, but they are managing so many different variables and processes simultaneously that it's almost humanly impossible to do that. So our system instead observes those, anticipates problems like, hey, it's Monday after Thanksgiving, it's really cold outside, you know, Dr. Smith's working, he tends to order more labs, our labs are slow. All these factors that'd be hard for someone to keep in front of them all the time. When it realizes we might run out of capacity, three, four hours in advance, it'll look at and find the bottleneck and create a discussion around how to fix that. So we do things like that about uh, at across about um, 40 to 50 hospitals across the country and have seen good outcomes through that. So that's that's what we do and that's been my 
my focus um, in the application of AI. And Robert, how did you get involved uh, with Qventus? Well, so Qventus was a company that fit within a theme uh, that we have been looking at for quite some time in, <clears throat> in artificial intelligence and machine learning as it applies to healthcare. And uh, within that search, we found this amazing company that uh, uh, was founded by a brilliant team of engineers slash business leaders uh, who had a particular set of insights from their work uh, with hospitals, um, where it was at at McKinsey, um, and had identified a problem set that was uh, very tractable for machine learning and um, you know, narrow AI, which we'll get into. So within that, within that context in, in the Bay Area, we found Cuventus, and um, we're just delighted to meet um, the team and their customers and, and, and really uh, uh, find a way to, to, um, to make a bet in this space. So we're always interested in case studies. We're really interested in how people are applying artificial intelligence um, to today, you know, kind of in the here and now. So put a little flesh on the bones of what what are you doing kind of what's what's real and here and how did yeah. you how did you build it and what what technology you're using and what did you learn and just give us a little bit of of that kind of uh perspective absolutely so i'll, I'll first start with like the kinds of things that we are doing so um, and then we'll we'll go into um how do we build it some of the lessons along the way uh as well um, you know, the, the, I was just giving you one example of, you know, running a, an emergency department and that, um, you know, today's world, there's a charge nurse that is uh, responsible for managing the flow and uh, the flow of patients through, the, through that emergency department is constantly trying to stay ahead of it. The example I gave was where instead the systems observing it, realizing, learning from it, and then creating a discussion among folks about how to change it. We have many, many different things. We call them recipes internally, but many, many different recipes that the system keeps looking for. It looks for, hey, here's a, here's a female who's younger, who's waiting and could see four other people waiting around her and is in acute pain. She is likely to get up and leave without being seen by a doctor, much more than other folks. And you might nudge a greeter to go up and talk to them. So we have many recipes and examples like these. I won't go into specific examples um, in, each, in each of those, but we do that in, in different areas of delivery of healthcare. So patient flow, just um, having patients go through the health systems in ways that don't require them to add resources, but allow them to provide the same care um, is, is one big category. We do that in the emergency department and units in the hospital and in the operating room. Um, also more recently, starting to do that in, in pharmacy operations, that pharmacy costs have started rising. What are things that today require a human to manually realize, follow up on, escalate and manage, and how can we help the AI smooth that process? We've seen really good results through that. I think you're asking about case studies that I think in the, in the emergency department side alone, um, you know, one of our customers, uh, they treated 3,000 more patients in that ED this year than last without adding resources. They've saved almost a million minutes of patient wait time in that single ED alone. And that's been fascinating. What's been even more amazing to see is um, hearing from the nurse managers there, how the staff feel like they have the ability to shape the events versus always being behind and always feeling like they're trying to solve the problem after the fact. And uh, they've seen some reductions in turnover and that ability of using AI to in some ways making healthcare more human for the people who help us 
the caregivers is what's extremely exciting in this work uh, for me. So um, just, to, yeah. just to visualize that for a moment, uh, if, if I just like looked at it from, from 30,000 feet and was looking down, people come into a hospital and right. all different ways and they have all different characteristics of, of um, you know, where they, where all, all the things you would normally think. And then there's a, there's a number of routings through the hospital experience, right? Rush them straight into here or there or this, this, this. So, so it's kind of a routing problem. Uh, it's a resource allocation problem, right? Like where do we put this here and all of that? What is it, what does all of that look like? I, I don't, this is, this is not a rhetorical question. What, what does all of that look, sim, what is all that similar to outside of the hospital? Like where is that approach broadly and generally applicable to? Is that, it's not a traffic routing problem. It's not an inventory management problem. It's, are there any corollaries you can think of? Yeah, no, you, you know, in many ways, there are similarities to um, anywhere where there is high fixed asset businesses and there's a distributed workforce. There's lots of similarities. I mean, logistics is a good example of, uh, of it, like thinking about, you know, where and how different um, deliveries are routed and how are they organized in a way that you meet the SLAs for different folks, but your cost of delivery is not too high. Uh, it, it has similarities to it. I think hospitals are in many ways one of the most complex businesses and given the variability is much, much higher, traditional methods have failed, right? Like in many of the other, um, uh, many of the other such logistical inventory management problems, you could use pure optimization techniques and you could do fairly well with them. Uh, but given the level of variability is much, much higher in, in healthcare because the patients that walk in are different. You might have a ton walk in one day, very few walk in the rest. The types of resources they need can, can vary quite a bit. Um, that makes the traditional methods alone much, much harder to apply. So in many ways, the problems are similar, right? Like how do you place the most product in a warehouse to make sure the deliveries are happening as fast as possible? How do you make sure you route flights and cancel flights in a way that causes minimum disruption but still maximizes the benefit of the entirety of the system? Um, how, do you, um, uh, how do you manage the, uh, the, the, the delivery of, uh, of packages across, uh, across a busy holiday season? Those problems have very similar elements to them and, and the importance of doing those well is probably similar in some ways, uh, but, but the techniques needed are, are different. And so, Robert, I want to I want to get to you in just a minute and talk about how you, as a physician, kind of see this. But I have a couple more technical questions. So, um, there's a there's a uh, an emergency room near my house that has a big billboard, and it has on there the number of minutes of wait time to right. get into the ER. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I've always wondered: is the idea that people drive by it and think, "Oh, only a four minute wait"? I'll, I'll go to the ER. Why not? Um, right. But in any case, um, what? So t two questions. So one, you said that there's somebody who's in acute pain, and th they've got four people, and they might get up and leave, and we should send a greeter over. In that example, is that data acquired about that person? Is that done uh, with cameras that are, or is that human entering? Like, how is data acquisition happening? Uh, and then, second, um, what was your training set? To, to use AI on, on, on this process? Like how did, you, how did you get an initial training set? Both great questions. So um, 
You know, much of uh, this is part of the first mile problem for AI and healthcare is that much of that data is actually already generated. Um, about about um, seven, six, seven years ago, um, started a pretty mass wave of digitization uh, in healthcare, and most of the digitization was taking existing paper-based processes and having them uh, run through electronic medical record systems. So what happens is when you walk into the emergency department, right? So let's say, Byron, you walked in. Someone would say, okay, what's your name? Okay, what are you here for? They type your name in. A timestamp stored alongside that. And we can use that timestamp to realize, hmm, a person's walked in. We know that they walked in for this reason. When you get assigned a room or assigned a doctor, then I, have a, I, I can, again, get a sense of, okay, at this time, they got assigned a room. At this time, they got assigned a doctor. At this time, their blood was drawn. All of that is getting stored in existing systems of record uh, already. And we um, take the data from the systems of record, learn, um, uh, learn historically. So before we start, we are able to learn historically. And then in the moment, we are able to intervene when a change needs to take place. And then the data acquisition part of the, of the acute patient's pain? Uh, yeah, so the, the the pain in that in that example is actually coming from the the kind of what they have um, complained about when you know I as soon see, as you pop, I see. Perfect. someone explains okay. what's going on. So we're looking at the types of patients who complain about similar pieces. What's their likelihood versus likelihood? Of this like that's what we will be learning on in that scenario. So Robert, I have to ask you before we dive into this. I like I'm just really intensely curious about your personal journey because I'm guessing you began uh, planning to be a medical practitioner. And then somewhere along the way, you decided to get an MBA. And then somewhere along the way, you decided to in, invest in technology companies and be on their boards. Like, what, what, has, what, what has that kind of, how did all of that happen? And like, I, what, what was your progressive realization that took you from place to place to place? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I'll spend just a couple minutes on it, but um, not exactly. So I would, I would say, in my heart, I am an engineer. Um, I started out as an engineer. I you know, did biomedical electrical engineering, and then I spent time at MIT when I was a, a medical student. I was in a very technical program between Harvard and MIT as a medical student. <clears throat> in my heart, I'm an engineer, which means I try to reduce um, reality to systems of practice and methods. And uh, and and coupled with that is um, my interest in in mission-driven organizations that also make money. So that that's where healthcare and engineering inter intersect. And um, not to go into too much detail on a podcast about myself, I think the, um, the, the next step in my career was to try to figure out how I could deeply understand the needs of healthcare so that I could help uh, others and myself bring to bear technology to solve uh, and address those needs. And so uh, the, 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 actually, the choice to become a practitioner was partially because I do enjoy solving problems in the emergency department, but also because it gave me a broad understanding of opportunities in healthcare at the ground level <clears throat> and above um, uh, in, in this way. And I'll just give you an example. The way I, the way I, when I first saw what Moodin and his team has done in, in the most amazing way at Juventus um, was as I, as I really understood the hospital as um, a, an airport with 50% of the planes landing being unscheduled. So to go back to your ER emergency department, department example. Imagine if you were responsible for safety and efficiency at SFO, San Francisco airport, without a tower and knowing only the schedule landing times for half of the jets, where each jet is a patient. Half of the, half of the volume of patients that spend their night in the hospital, or about half, 
comes to the ED. And when I show up for a shift, that first, second, and third patient can be stroke, heart attack, broken leg, can be shortness of breath, uh, skin, skin rash, et cetera. Um, the, the level of complexity in healthcare to operationalize um, you know, improvements in the way that Mooted has is incredibly high. And we're just at the beginning. They, they are clearly the leader here. But um, th- what I saw in, in my personal journey in this company is, is the usage of, of, of significant technology to address key, key throughput needs in healthcare. So when, you, when, you, when one stack ranks what we hope artificial intelligence does for the world uh, on most people's list, right up there at the very top, is, uh, is, is impact health. How do you think that's overly hyped? Because there's all kinds of, um, you know, we have an, an, an ending series of wishes that we hope artificial intelligence can do. Do you think it's possible that it, that it delivers eventually on, on all of that, that it really is a, a transformative technology that, that materially alters um, human health at a global level? So absolutely and wholeheartedly. Um, my background as a researcher in neuroscience was modeling, um, you know, using neural networks to model brain function in various animal models. And I would tell you that um, the, the variety of ways that machine learning and AI, which are the terms we use now for these technologies, the variety of ways they will affect human health are, are massive. Um, I would say within the Gartner hype cycle, we are early. We are overhyping in the short term, the value of this technology. We are not overhyping the value of this technology in the next 10, 20, 30 years. I believe that AI is the driver of our industrial revolution. This, this will be looked back at as an industrial revolution of sorts. Uh, and so I, I think there's huge benefit that, that are going to be accrued to healthcare providers and patients uh, through the usage of these technologies. So put, talk about that a little more, like paint a picture of a world in 30 years and assuming all goes well. Assuming all goes well, what, what, what would our health experience look like in that world? Yeah, well, hopefully your health experience, and I think Mudit's done a great job describing this, will return to a human experience between a patient and a physician or provider. I think in the back room, uh, or when you're at home interacting with that practice, I think you're going to see a lot more AI. Let me give you one example. Um, We have a, a company that went public, a digital health company that uses machine learning to read EKG data, so cardiac electrical activity data. Um, a typical human would take eight hours to read a single uh, study on a patient, but by using machine learning, they get down to five to tens of minutes. The, the human is still there over-reading what the uh, machine learned uh, software is producing. This company is called um, iRhythm. And, uh, and what that allows us to do is reach a lot more patients at a lower cost than you could achieve with human labor. You'll see this in radiology. You'll see this in coaching patients. You'll see this in where I think um, Amudit has, has uh, you know, really uh, innovated, which is he has created a platform that is enabling. So in the case that I gave you with uh, humans, um, you know, being augmented by what I call, you know, automation, semi-automation automation of a human task, that's one thing. What Mooted is doing is truly enabling AI. Humans cannot do what he does in the time and scale that he does it. That is what's really exciting. Machines that can do things humans cannot do. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think just to, to visualize that system, there are some things that are not easily understood today, but I think you will see radiology improved with some automation. I think patients will be coached with smart AI to improve their well-being, and, and that's already being seen today. Um, human providers will have leverage because the computer, the machine will help prioritize their day, which patient to talk to about what, when, how, why. Um, so I think you'll see a more human experience. That's the concern is that we will see a more manufactured experience. I don't think that's the case at all. The, the, the design that we'll probably see succeed is one where the human will become front and center again, where physicians will no longer be looking at screens, typing in data. They'll be, con they'll be uh, communicating face to face with a human with an AI helping out, advising, enabling those uh, tedious tasks that the human shouldn't be burdened with to allow the relationship between the patient and physician to, to return. So, Mudit, when you, when you think of artificial intelligence and applying artificial intelligence to this particular problem, where, where do you go from that? Do you, do you want to take, like, is the plan to take that learning and obviously scale it out to more hospitals, but what, 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 what is the next level to add, like, depth to it to be able to, okay, we can land all the planes now safely. Uh, now we want to refuel them faster, or I don't know, the analogy breaks down at some point. Where, where would you go from here? Yeah, no, we already, um, as, our, as, as customers are starting to see um, results of this, this approach in one area, we've, we've started expanding already and have a lot more um, expansion coming down the line as well. If you think of it, at the end of the day, so much of healthcare delivery is pr heavily process-driven, right? Anywhere from how your bills get generated, to when you get calls, you know, I've had times when I might get a call from uh, from health system saying I have a $10 bill they're about to send to, sell, send to collection when I've paid all the bills to date. Like there are things like that that are constantly happening that are breakdowns in processes across delivery, uh, across the board. So we started, as I said, like four or five years ago and very specifically focused on the emergency department, going from there into the surgery area, which is also another place where um, similarly like operating rooms can cost upwards of hundreds of dollars a minute. And how do you manage that complex uh, an operation, a logistics uh, setting to deliver the best value? And, and, and I've seen really good results there. Managing the entirety of, of all the units in the hospital. More recently, as I was saying, we are now going to start, we're now starting to work with Sutter Health in um, across 26 of their hospital pharmacies in looking at what are the key pieces um, uh, around operations in the pharmacy, which are again, manually holding people back from uh, delivering their best care. So they, the, these are the different pieces across the board that we're already starting to see. Most of um, the common thread across all of these, I find, is that you know we have amazing, incredible clinicians today that if they had all the time and energy in the world to focus on anticipating these problems and delivering the best care, they would do a great job. But we cannot afford um, we cannot afford to keep having more people solve these problems. There are significant margin pressures across healthcare, and the the same people who were able to do these things before have to do lists that are growing faster than they can ever that they can ever comprehend. And the job of AI really is to act as kind of their assistant um, and and watch those decisions on their behalf and help make those really 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 easy, and to take all of the boring mundane logistics out of their hands so they can focus on what they can do best, which is deliver care to their patients. Uh, so right now, we, as I said, like started on the flow side, 
uh, pharmacy is a new area. Outpatient clinics and imaging centers is another area that we are um, we are working with a few select customers on. And there's some really, really exciting stuff there in increasing the access to care when you might call a physician to get access um, while reducing the burden on that physician uh, that we are working on. And another really exciting piece for me is, you know, in many ways, the U.S. healthcare system is unique. But in this complexity of its logistics and operations, it is not. So we're already starting to work with hospitals globally, just started with working uh, with, a, with uh, our first international customer recently, and the same problems exist everywhere. There was an article in BBC, um, I think a week or two weeks ago, where there's long surgery waiting lists uh, in the UK, uh, and they are struggling to get those patients seen in that system due to lack of efficiency in, in this logistics. So that's the other piece that I'm really excited about is not only the breadth of these problems where there's complexity of processes, but uh, also the global applicability of it. So I'm, it, the exciting thing to me about uh, this episode of Voices is that I have two people who are uh, engineers who understand AI and who have a deep knowledge of health. So I just have several questions that kind of sit at the intersection of all of that, I would love to throw at you. Um, uh, so my first one is this. So the human, the human uh, genome is however many billions of base pairs. It works out to something like 762 meg of data. But if you look at what we share, what's, what makes us different than, say, chimps, it may be, you know, 1% of that. So in something like 7 or 8 meg of data is the code you need to build an intelligent uh, brain person. Does that imply to you that artificial intelligence might have a breakthrough? There, there might be a, a, a relatively straightforward and simple thing about intelligence that we're going to learn that will supercharge it? Or is your view that no, no, unfortunately, uh, something like a general intelligence is going to be a hundred kludgy, you know, hunks of spaghetti code that kind of work together and, and, and pull it, pull off this AGI thing. Uh, Mood it. I'll ask you first. Yeah. And boy, that's a tough question. I, I'll, I'll do my best at answering that one. Um, yeah. Do I believe if they will be able to get a general purpose AI um, built in a short, uh, like with, with seven, eight megs of, of code? Um, you know, or, does that that imply, that, or does that imply? Yeah, does that imply? Yeah, that, that it's simple. There's a part of me that, yeah, there's a part of me that does believe in that simplicity and does believe and want to believe um, uh, in in that the answer eventually. If you look at a lot of our lot of our lot of our machine learning code itself, it's not the code itself that's actually that complex. It's the first mile and the last mile of that code that ends up being taking the vast majority of the code. How do you get the training sets in, and how do you get the output out? is what takes majority of the AI code today. The, the, the fundamental learning code isn't that big um, uh, today, but, but I do, but I do, um, I don't know if you'll solve general purpose AI anytime soon. I'm certainly not holding my breath for that, but um, there's a, there's a part of me that feels and hopes that the, the fundamental concepts of actually the learning and the intelligence will not be that um, complicated at an individual micro scale much like ourselves, we'll be able to understand them. It's just there'll be some beauty and harmony and symphony in how they all come together. And, um, and that actually won't be complex in hindsight, but it'll be extremely complex 
to figure out the first time around. That, that's, but it's purely speculative. But that that be my that be my belief and my hunch right now. Robert, do you want to add anything to that, or let that uh, answer stand? I, I I'd be happy to. So I think <clears throat> it's an interesting analogy to to make. Um, there are some parts of it that'll break down and parts that will parallel between the human genome's complexity and utility and and the human brain. Um, uh, you know, just just I think when we think about the genome, you're right. It's it's uh, several billion base pairs where we only have about 20,000 genes in there, about, um, you know, a, a small minority percentage that actually code for protein. And, and a minority of those that we understand affect uh, the, the human in a diseased way, like a thousand genes to 2000 genes. So <clears throat> there's, there's a lot of base pairs that we don't understand and could be related to structure of the genome as it needs to do what it does um, in the in the human body and the cell on the on the brain side though i think i think i would go with your latter response which is if you look at the human brain and i've had the privilege of working with you know animal models and human and and looking at human data um, the brain is segmented into uh, 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 various functional units so uh, for example the auditory cortex is responsible for taking information from the ear and converting it to signals that then are pattern recognized into say language and where those symbols of, of what words we're speaking are then processed by other parts of the cortex. Um, similarly, the hippocampus, which sits in the kind of the oldest part of the brain is responsible for learning. Um, so it, it is able to look at various um, inputs from all of these from the visual and auditory and other cort cortices and, and then upload them to long-term memory from short-term memory. So the, the brain is functionally segmented and physically segmented. Um, and I believe that uh, a general purpose AI will have the same kind of structure in the sense that, um, and it's funny, we have this, you know, the AI effect is when we solve a problem with code or with uh, machinery, it's no longer AI. So for example, natural language processing, some would consider now not part of AI because we've somewhat solved it, or speech recognition used to be AI, but now it's an input to the AI because the AI is thinking about more understanding than interpretation of uh, audio signals and converting them into words. So I think I, I would tell, I would say what we're going to see, which is similar to the human body encoded by these 20,000 genes, is you'll have functional expertise um, with, with presumably code uh, that, that uh, is used for segmenting the problem of creating a general AI. So a second question then. You, uh, Robert, uh, waxed earlier about how big the possibilities are for using artificial intelligence with health. Uh, of course, we know that the number of people who uh, are living to 100 keeps going up, 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 up. The number of people who, make, who become super centurions uh, is in the dozens who get to 110. The number of people who have lived to 125 is stubbornly fixed at zero. Do you believe, and not even getting aspirational about, quote, curing death, do you think that what's most likely to happen is more of us are gonna make it to 100 healthily? Or do you think that 125 is, uh, is something we'll, we'll, we'll break and maybe, maybe somebody will live to 150? What do you think about that? That's a really hard question. I would say that if I look at the trajectory of gains that um, <clears throat> public health primarily with uh, things like um, treated water um, to medicine, uh, we've seen a dramatic increase in human longevity in the developed world um, from, from 
you know, taking down the average at birth with, with uh, you know, children dying during childbirth, which lowers the average, obviously, to um, extending life in the, in the later years. And, and if you look at the effects there, they obviously have a number of effects on th those, those conclusions have a number of effects on society. For example, when Social Security was invented, a minority of individuals would live to the age in which they would start accruing significant benefits. Obviously, that's no longer the case. Um, so to answer your question, uh, there, there's no theoretical reason that I can come up with that I, I can't imagine someone making it to 125. Um, 150 is obviously harder to imagine, but we've understood, we understand the human cell at a certain level and the genome and the machinery of the human body. And we've been able to thwart the body's effort to fatigue and, and expire a number of times now, whether it's cardiovascular disease or cancer. Um, and we've studied longevity, we meaning the field, not myself. So I don't see any reason why we, we would say we will not have individuals reach 125 or even 150. Now, what is the time course of that? Do we want that to happen? What are the implications for society? Those are other big questions to answer. But science will continue to push the limits of understanding human function at the cellular and the physiologic level to extend the human life. And, and I don't see a limit to that currently. So there's this worm called the nematode worm, little bitty fella. He's, you know, the size of a, he's as long as a hair is wide. The most successful animal on the planet. So something like 70% of all animals are nematode worms. Uh, his, the, the brain of the nematode worm has 302 neurons. Uh, and for 20 years or so, people have been trying to model that, those 302 neurons in a computer and, and the Open Worm Project. And even to date, there's some, um, they, they don't even know if they can do it. They don't know if they can do it. That, that that's how little we understand. We don't not understand the human brain because it's so complex. We don't understand anything about, or I don't want to say anything. We don't understand just how neurons themselves work. Do you think it's possible that, one, do we need to understand how our brains work or the nematode brain works for that matter? to make strides towards an AGI? And second, is it possible that, that, a, that a neuron, you know, has stuff going on at like the Planck level that it's, that it's as complicated as a supercomputer, making intelligence acquired that way incredibly difficult? Do either of you want to comment on that? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that uh, when I was at Stanford doing some work in new engineering, one of my, one of my professors used to say it's, our study of human brain is sort of like someone just invented, someone had a computer, a supercomputer, you got two electrodes and you were poking the electrodes at different places of the, of the thing and trying to figure out how it works, right? And <laughs> I can't imagine ever figuring out how a computer works outside in um, by just having like two electrodes and seeing the different voltages coming out of it. So um, I, do, I do see the complexity um, of it. I think, um, you know, is, is it necessary for us to understand how the neuron works? Um, I'm not sure it's necessary for us to understand how the, human, uh, the, how the neuron works, but if we were to come up with uh, a, a way where we can build a system that's both resilient, redundant, and simple, that can do that, that level of intelligence, I think that's, that's hundreds of thousands of years of evolution um, uh, that has helped us get to that solution. So it would be it would, I think, be a critical input. Um, without that, I see a different approach, which we, which is what we are taking today, which is inspired, likely, but it's, it's not the same, right? It's, 
um, in, in our brain, when, when, things, uh, when, when neurons fire, yes, we have now a similar transfer function for many of our neural networks in how the, the neuron fires. But um, for any, any kind of meaningful signal to come out, we have a population of neurons firing in our, in our brain that makes the input signal continuous and very, very redundant and very, very resilient. It wouldn't fail even if some portion of those neurons stopped working. But that's not how, that's not how our models work. That's not how our, uh, our math works today. So I, I think in, in finding the most optimized, probably elegant and resilient way of doing it, um, I think it would be remiss, but not to take inspiration from um, what has been evolved over, um, over a long, long period of time uh, to perhaps being one of the most efficient ways of, uh, of having general purpose AI. So I, at least my belief would be um, we will have to learn, and I, I would think that our understanding is still, still largely simplistic, and, um, and at least I, I, would, I would hope and believe that we'll learn a lot more and find out that, yeah, each one of those perhaps either communicates more or does it in a way that um, brings the system to the optimal solution a lot faster than we would imagine. I would just to add to that, I would say, uh, I agree with everything we just said, I would say, do we need to uh, study the neuron and um, neural networks in vivo and in, in animals? Um, and the answer to that is, as humans, we do. I mean, I believe that we have an innate curiosity to understand ourselves and that we need to do, whether it's funded or not, the, the curiosity to understand who we are, where we came from, how we work will drive that just like it's driven fields as, uh, you know, as diverse as, um, uh, you know, astronomy to, uh, to aviation. I think, um, do we need to understand at the level of detail you're describing, for example, what exactly happens at the synapse stochastically where neurotransmitters bind to receptors that open ion channels that change the resting potential of a neuron such that additional, um, uh, axonal effects occur where at the end of that neuron, you then release another neurotransmitter. I don't think so because <clears throat> I think we learn a lot, as Mudit said, from understanding how these highly developed um, and trained systems we call, you know, animals and humans work, but they were molded over large periods of time for specific survival tasks to live in the environments that they live in. The, the systems we're building, or Mudit's building, um, uh, and, and, and others are designed for other uses. And so we can take, as he said, inspiration from them, but we don't need to model what a nematode, how a nematode thinks to help a hospital work more effectively. In the same way that there are two ways, for example, uh, uh, you know, someone could fly from here to, um, to San Francisco, where I'm sitting in Palo Alto, or maybe not Palo Alto, let's, let's say Los Angeles. You could be a bird, which is a highly uh, evolved flying creature, which has sensors, which has clearly neural networks that are able to control um, uh, wing movement and, uh, you know, effectively the, the wing surface area to create lift, et cetera. Or you could build a metal tube with jets on it that get you there as well. And I think they have different use cases and different criteria. The, the airplane is inspired by birds. The wing of an airplane, the, the cross section of the wing, um, <clears throat> is designed like a bird's wing is, in that the, the one pathway is longer than the other, which changes pressure above and below the wing that allows flight to occur. But clearly, the rest of it is very different. And so I think the inspiration 
drove aviation to a solution that has many parts from what birds have, but is incredibly different because the solution was to the problem of transporting humans. So, um, earlier you said we're not going to have an AGI anytime soon. Uh, I, have, I have two questions to follow up on that thought. The first is that the, among people who um, are, are in, in the tech space, there's, there's a range of something like five to 500 years as when we, would, when we might get a general intelligence. And I'm curious, one, um, why, do you, why do you think there's such a range? And two, I'm curious on both of you, kind of, if, if, if you were going to throw a dart at that board, dartboard, where would you, you know, where would you place your bet to mix a metaphor? Yeah, and I think, uh, I think in, the, in the dart metaphor, <laughs> chances of being right are pretty low, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll give it a shot. Um, you know, I think the... the um, Part of it is, uh, part of it is, I think, um, at least I, I ask myself, is the bar we hold for AGI too high? And at what point do we start feeling that a collection of special purpose AIs that are, that are wielded together can start feeling like an AGI and is that good enough? So I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, and I think that's part of what, that part of that um, makes the answer, perhaps harder, similar to what Robert was saying, where the more problems we solve, the the more we see them as as algorithmic and less as as um, AI. Um, but I do think at some point, um, at least in my mind, like if I if I can see an AI starting to question the constraints of the problem and the goal it's trying to maximize. That's where true creativity for humans comes from. When when you when we break rules and when we don't follow the rules we were given, and that's where also the scary part of AI comes from because it can do that at scale. Then, um, I I don't see today. I don't see us close to that. Um, and if I had to guess, I'm going to just say, <laughs> on this exponential curve, I'm going to probably probably not pick out the right point, but. Um, four to five decades is when we start seeing enough enough of the framework and maybe in a century we can see some applied, uh, some, some um, uh, tangible general purpose AI come to form. Robert, do you want to weigh in or you take a pass on that one? No, I'll, I'll weigh in quickly. Um, you know, I think we often see this in, in all of investing actually, which is um, whether it's uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, whether it's stenting, robotics, and medicine, <clears throat> we as investors have to work hard to um, not overestimate the effect of a technology now um, and not underestimate the effect of technology in the long run. So, uh, you know, this, this came from, a, I believe, a Stanford professor, Roy um, Amra Amara, um, who unfortunately passed uh, a while ago. Uh, but that idea of saying, let's not overhype it, but it's going to be much more profound than we can even imagine today. Puts my estimate probably, and it depends again how you define general AI, which is probably not worth doing. I would say it's within 15 to 20 years. So, you know, we, we, have, we have this brain, the only kind of AGI, well, the only general intelligence that we know of. And then we have the mind and, and kind of a definition of that that 
I think everybody could kind of agree to is the mind is a set of uh, abilities that don't seem at first glance to be something an organ could do, like uh, creativity or a sense of humor. And then we have consciousness. We actually experience the world. A computer can measure temperature, but we can, we can burn our finger and that, we can feel that. Um, so my questions are, you know, we would expect the computer to have, quote, a mind. We would expect it to, an AGI to be creative. Uh, do you think, one, that consciousness is required to, for general intelligence? And, and, and to follow up on that, do you believe computers can become conscious, that they can experience the world as opposed to just measure it? Yeah, and that's a, that's a really hard one, too. I think, actually, in my mind, what's most important, and there's, there's a kind of a gray line between the two, is creativity is what's most important. The element of surprise is what's most important. The more, the more um, an, an AI can surprise you, uh, the more you feel like it's it's, intel it's truly intelligent. So that creativity is extremely important. Um, but I think the the reason I said there's a there's kind of a path from one to the other is um, it's uh, and I, again <laughs> this is very philosophical of how to define consciousness, but in many ways, it's when we start um, taking a specific task that given, is given to us, but really start asking the, the larger objective, the larger purpose, is when I feel like um, that's what truly distinguishes uh, a being or a person uh, being conscious. And until the AI is able to be creative and break the bounds of the specific rules or the specific expected behavior, that it's programmed to do, certainly the path to consciousness is very, very hard. So I, I feel like creativity and um, surprising us is probably the first piece, which is also the one that honestly scares us as humans the most, because that's where we feel a sense of losing control over the AI. Um, I don't think true consciousness is necessary, but I, um, but they might go hand in hand. I, I can't think of it being necessary, but but the two might the two might evolve simultaneously and they might go hand in hand. I mean, I, I would just add one other, uh, one other thought there, which is, so I've spent many hours having this debate is what, what is consciousness? Many, many, many hours in, in college, where, where is the seat of consciousness? Um, and, you know, anatomists for centuries have dissected and dissected and is it this gland or is it that place and or is it a uh is it a a an organized um effect of of the structure and function of all of these parts and i think i think that's why we need to study the brain to be fair we're all one of the the underlying efforts there is to understand consciousness what is it that makes a physical entity able to do what you said to experience what you said to experience, you know, more, more than just experiencing a location, experiencing things like love. How could a, could a human um, uh, do that if they were a machine? Uh, can a human have, uh, can a machine have empathy? But I think beyond that, um, as I think practically as an investor and as a physician, I frankly, I don't know if I care if the machine is conscious or not. I care more about who do I assign responsibility to for the actions and thoughts of that entity. So, for example, if they make the wrong, if they make a decision that harms someone, 
or if they make the wrong dis- they make the wrong diagnosis, what recourse do I have? A consciousness in human beings allows us. We believe in free will. That that's where you know all of our, our all of our entities around you know human justice come from. But uh, if if the machine is deterministic, then a higher power, maybe the human that designed it, is ultimately responsible. For, for me, it's a big question about responsibility with respect to these AIs, and less about whether they're conscious or not. If they're conscious, then we might be able to assign responsibility to the machine, but then how do we penalize it financially, otherwise? If they're not conscious, then we probably need to assign responsibility to the owner or the the person that configured the machine. You know, it's interesting to me that, I started the question earlier about why is there such a range of beliefs about when we might get a general intelligence. But the other interesting thing, which you're, you're kind of touching on, is there's a wide range of belief about whether we would want one. You know, you've got the Elon Musk camp of summoning the demon, Professor Hawking saying, you know, it's uh, existential threat, and uh, Bill Gates, you know, has said, I don't understand why more people aren't worried about it, and, and so forth. And then on the other end, you have people like Andrew Ng, who said that's like worrying about overpopulation of Mars, uh, Rodney Brooks, the roboticist, and, and so forth, who, who dismiss the, you know, it's almost eye-rolling uh, that, you can, that you can see. And um, why do you, what are the core assumptions that those two groups have, and, or why do they, why are they so different from each other in their, in their regard to this technology? It's, um, to me, it boils down to the same things that make me excited about large-scale potential on, from a general purpose side are the things that make me scared. So, you know, how we were talking about creativity. So if I go back to creativity for a second, creativity come from, will come from if an AI is told to maximize an objective function and the objective function has constraints, should it be allowed to question the constraints and the problem itself? If it is allowed to do that, that's where true creativity would come from, right? That's what a human would do. I might, I might give someone a task or a problem, but they, they'll come back and question it. And that's where true creativity will come from. But, but the minute we allow um, an AI to do that is also when we lose the sense of control. And what's, we also don't have that sense of control in humans today, but what freaks us about AI is AI can then take that and do that at very, very, very rapid scale at a pace at which we may not even as society uh, catch up to, realize, and be able to control or regulate, which we can in case of humans. And I think that's, that's, the, that's the part of like both the exciting part and the, and the fear are really hand in hand. And the pace at which AI can then bring about the change once those constraints are loosened is, is something we haven't seen before. And, and we already see in today's environment our inability to keep pace with how fast technology is changing from a regulation, from a, from a framework standpoint as a society. And I think once that happens, that'll be called into question even more. And I think that's probably why uh, many in the camp of um, Elon Musk, Sam Altman and others, I think in, in many ways, I think uh, the part of their ask that resonates with me is we probably should start thinking about how we will tackle the problem. How will we, what framework should we have in place earlier so we have time as society to wrestle with it before it comes and it's right in our face. I would add to that with four things. I would say um, <clears throat> the four areas that I think uh, 
kind of define this a bit are, and, and there were a couple that, that were mentioned by Mudit. I think it's speed. So speed of computation of affecting the, the, the world in which the, the machine would be in. Scalability, the fact that it can affect the physical environment and the fact that machines, as we currently believe them, do not have morals or ethics, depending on how you define it. So there's four things. So something that's super fast, that's highly scaled, that can affect the physical world with no ethics or uh, you know, morality, that is a scary thing, right? That is a, that is a truck on 101 with a robotic driver that is going to go 100 miles an hour and doesn't care what it hits. That's the scary part of it. But, but that, that, there's a lot of technology that looks like that. If you are able to design it properly and constrain it, it can be incredibly powerful. It's just that the, you know, the, 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 the conflict is, is in those four areas could be, could be very detrimental to us. So to, to pull the conversation back closer to the here and now, I want to ask each of you, like, what's, what's a, a breakthrough in artificial intelligence in the medical profession uh, that we may not have heard about? Because there's so many of them. Uh, so what is something, and then tell me something, uh, I'll put both of you on the spot on this. Tell me something you think we're going to see in like, you know, two years or three years, something that's on the, uh, a time horizon where, where we can be very confident we're going we're gonna to see that. Um, Muda, why don't you start? What, what is something we may not know about and what is something that will happen pretty soon, do you think, in AI and medicine? Yeah, I think one of the things, um, and this might go back to what I was saying, is I think the breakthrough is less in the machine learning itself, but the operationalization of it, right? The, the ability, if we had the first mile and the last mile solved, to learn exists. But in the real complex world of high emotions, um, messy human-generated data, um, the ability to actually not only predict, but in the moment prescribe and persuade people to take action is what I'm most excited about and I'm starting to see happen today uh, that I think is, is, is going to um, be transformative uh, in, in the ability of existing machine learning prowess to actually impact our health and our healthcare system. So that's the part that I'm most excited about. It may not be about exactly what you're looking for in terms of what breakthrough, but I think it's a breakthrough of a different type in that it's a breakthrough, not, a, not an algorithmic breakthrough, but it's an operationalization breakthrough, which, which, uh, which I'm super excited about. The, um, the um, part you asked me about um, that I think in two to three years we could start doing um, that we perhaps not, don't do as well. Um, I know, you know one that is um, very, very clear is places where there's high degrees of structured data that we require humans to pour through. And I know um, Robert spent a lot of time, so I'll leave it, leave this one to him and run around radiology, around EKG data, around this huge quantities of structured data that is just impossible to monitor. But the number of the number of um, poor quality outcomes, mortality, uh, and and bad events like that that happen, which if it was humanly feasible to monitor all that and realize, um, I I believe we are two to three years away from starting to meaningfully bend that, um, both, both kind of process-wise, logistically, and then, and then from, from a diagnosis standpoint. And it'll be basic stuff. It'll be stuff that we have known for a long time we should do. But you know, as, as the classic saying goes, 
Um, it takes 17 years from knowing something to do, something should be done, doing it at scale in healthcare. I think it'd be that kind of stuff where we'll start rapidly shortening and uh, and uh, reducing that cycle time and, and seeing vast effects of that uh, in our healthcare system. I'll give you my two briefly. I think um, it's hard to come up with something that you may not have heard about, Byron, with your background. So I'll speak more about the general audience. But um, first of all, I agree with Mooted. I think the two to three year time frame. what's obvious is that any signal processing in healthcare that is being done by a human is going to be rapidly moved to a computer. So iRhythm is again an example of a company trading over a billion, a little, a little over a year out, outside of its IPO, um, that does that for cardiology data, EKG data, um, acquired through a patch. Um, <clears throat> there are over 40 companies that we have tracked in the radiology space that are pre-reading or in some sense providing a pre-diagnostic read of CTs, MRIs, X-rays for human radiology overreads for diagnosis. That is happening in the next two to five years. That is absolutely going to happen in the next two to five years. Companies like GE and Philips are leading it. There are lots of startups doing work there. Um, I think the area that might not be so uh, available to the general public um, is the usage of machine learning on human conversation. So imagine in therapy, for example. Therapy is moving to teletherapy, telemedicine. Um, those are digitized conversations. They can be recorded and trans, uh, translated into um, uh, language symbols, which can then be evaluated. Computational technology is being developed and, and is available today that can look at those conversations to decipher whether, for example, someone is anxious today or depressed, needs more attention, may need a cognitive behavioral therapy intervention that's, that is compatible with their state. And that allows not only the scaling of signal processing, but the scaling of human labor that is providing psychological therapy to these patients. And so I think that's where we start looking at conversations. This is already being done in the management of sales forces with companies using AI to monitor sales calls and coach sales reps as to how to position things in those calls to more effectively uh, increase the conversion of a sale. We're seeing that in healthcare as well. All right. Well, that is, um, that's all very promising. That's all like kind of lifts up our day to know that like there's stuff coming and it's going to be here relatively soon. And I think that's probably a good place to leave it. As I look at our timer, we are out of time, but I want to thank both of you for taking the time out of, I'm sure you're very busy days to, to have this conversation with us and let us uh, in on a little bit of what you're thinking, what you're working on. So thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Byron. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called The AI Minute. And every day, it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice. But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.